Welcome to a Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. I'm Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello and welcome to Missoni and Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we learn about the experiences of female food entrepreneurs. We are here with stories of hope and inspiration for all of our food friends out there. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Missoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. Good to see you for a second. I thought maybe you weren't going to show up today. <laughs> Because I, I thought you were still camping because you posted some camping photos of food. Oh, no, no, no. We Yeah, we made this crazy um, thing with hash browns and then put cheese and sausages in the middle using one of those sandwich press things you put over the fire. Boy, was that ever rich and delicious. I know it looked really fancy and good. I saw everybody was like, make that for me. That's fancy camping food. I know. There's like a whole movement where you cook every meal in one of those. We used to call them Tonka pie um, irons, but now I don't know what they call them. But they have double size ones that are like 10 inches and you can make this huge thing. And that's what we did. And it's like a ca- like a cast iron. Yeah, so you lay the hash browns down on one side, then you put whatever you want on top, and then you put another layer of hash browns, and then you fold the thing together, and you just put it over the fire, and the cast iron gets hot, and it cooks it and melts the stuff inside. It's super yummy. That's really cool. It looked delicious, and you had a lot of um, food fans out there that were like, cook me my camping meals. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually, I don't get credit for it. We bought this book um, at Camping World <laughs> that had like 50 different sandwiches you can make. So every time we go camping, we're going to try something different. But let's not talk just about me. Let's talk about you too. I saw you sliding down a giant slide with your daughter. <laughs> oh yeah. We went to Oaks Park for Father's Day. We, oh. um, we told Jerk that we were going to take him on a picnic and you know, he's not a real outside guy. So he was yeah. kind of like, what, why are you taking me on a picnic for Father's Day? Yeah. But then we, we took him to Oaks Park so that, um, he could. He likes to play all the carnival games and win prizes for Adeline. So oh, they, they played played all the games and had all the fun. And we went early before it was too hot. And yes, I went on the giant slide with Adeline. <laughs> I noticed that Adeline made it farther down the slide than you did. So well, she has really yeah, good technique. Yeah, she um, she pushed herself off, and I was a little bit like, I don't know. I feel like I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that I was heavier, so I would go faster, but I, I didn't really, which was yeah. totally fine with me. <laughs> it's so fun to see you out there doing that. Well, yeah, now they opened a lot of the outside things up. So we're trying to experience the world again outside. So it's can, been really fun. Can you update us? Like, how are the farmers markets going now that more people are out and about? 
They're going good. The markets are, um, you know, busy. People are used to shopping. They're used to being outside. Um, so they're going really great. And I, you know, it's really nice to have so much community support. So, you know, just thanks to everyone for coming to the markets and, and getting out there and supporting us makers directly. It's really nice to have all that support. And you had some special sauces I saw that you had made the last couple of weeks. I do. Yeah. So we're running our um, sauce that we make with lardo every year and they're going to run a sandwich. It's a recipe from my cookbook and I make it when cucumbers are in season. So it's a cucumber mm. and serrano um, mustard based hot sauce. So we, I make the mustard for it. And so it's really good for sandwiches and they're going to run a sandwich a little bit later. I'll let everyone know when that happens, but um Right now, they just opened their Lake Oswego shop, so they were a little too busy. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Ovations has a coffee shop there. They want it to sort of be like Italy. Yeah, Um, I haven't been out there yet. We should try to go together and see what buddies are out there. You should see if you can do a pop-up hot sauce table there or something. That would be cool. That's a good idea. Bring all the hot (laughs) sauce people and do a big hot sauce tasting. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be super fun. Yeah, so that's what I've been working on. Thanks for um, asking and noticing my stuff I've got going on. You're always doing something interesting. (laughs) That's true. Well, we are not alone today. We have a special guest here. I would like to introduce Larissa Zimberoff. She is a journalist and author, and she's here to tell us about her new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Welcome. Thank you, Sarahs. It's so good to have you on the show today. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, Sarah Masoni is actually yes. in my book. Yes, I am. That is so cool. I want to know everything. <laughs> oh, you know what? I'll let you borrow. Larissa sent me a copy of the book. I only read parts of it. I'll, I'll let you read it and then you can like tell me. And then I'll read it. I know. Sarah was just telling me that she, <laughs> that she doesn't read, which to me seems read. so crazy. I figured she, that out. Like a <laughs> couple of years ago, I'm like, I am not reading. I'm just not into it right now. I don't know if it's a season or what, but I just can't sit down and read it. I just have too much other. Well, conveniently, I narrated the audio and the audio is now for sale on audio. Oh. And you can listen to it. How do you get that audio one? Do you know? Audible.com. Audible.com. So we just do a search on your book name. It'll be super easy. Yeah. So Sarah, you listen to it. I'll read your copy and then we'll talk about it like a real life. We'll talk about it on the show. Yeah. Yeah. We know for sure. Oh, but wait a second. Serious. This is that show. This is yes. that show. I know. No, we're supposed we'll to read it before it. the show. No, we have followers. People listen to us every week. Kidding me? They're going to want to know. They're going to be like, what did Sarah and Sarah think? Yeah, but that today, now. I know. No, no, <laughs> but like next week, they'll be like, did they, are they going to bring that up? So I just want to make one statement about this work that Larissa is doing. I want to say that the only thing more intimate than eating food is writing about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty intimate. Like when you get into all the details of what people are doing, why they did it, how they thought about it, like that's pretty intimate when you eat food. I mean, you put it in your mouth and it like goes through your whole system, but the um the thoughts and all the preparation and stuff that go into writing is pretty pretty it's pretty big 
I hadn't thought about it that way. It's really, I guess it's more cerebral and you have to put words to what, what it is that you're experiencing. And that's what people are unfamiliar with. So you have to get real close up to that. Yeah. And you just re, I mean, recently, like in the last, what, 10 to 12 years became a writer. Can you tell us how you decided to do that? Yeah. Um, I got laid off twice from my high tech job in the Bay area uh, between the layoff one and layoff two, I applied to graduate school. And then I got a job offer that I couldn't resist and I took it. And a year later, I got laid off. So I had been accepted to graduate school in New York. Uh, okay. And, and I packed up my belongings. I left my San Francisco apartment and I moved to New York and I went to uh, the new school and I received my MFA in creative writing two years later. Wow, that's awesome. And do you, so, do you specialize always in writing about food or is that just what your, this book project has been or is, is writing about food generally what you do? Food is my thing. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it's important for, for, for a writer to discover what their driving force is. And mine is food. Uh, the reason I wrote this book is because I have so many friends and family and even strangers on the street who just want to know, like, are these new foods healthy? Are these new foods delicious? Like what's in these new foods? Like, you know, have you tried them? Right. They all had so many questions and I had questions and, you know, I, what I saw happening was sort of this move from like, we had kind of with Michael Pollan and Dan Barber, the chef, the like famed chef on the, on the East coast, you know, we had started getting this like transparency and this like farm to table movements. We had slow food. We had all these movements that were really bringing like rich farming life, the farmer's market to life, this like vibrant, delicious, tasty food. Um, And now we have this whole new movement that's all about technology. And this technology is becoming, making our food system more complex to understand. And I I wrote this book to, you know, one, to to feed my own food desires to learn more. And then also to like share with the world, like what's happening out there. You should be a speaker at the Geek Wired conference in Seattle. Have you yeah. have you approached them? You'd be perfect for that conference. <laughs> I was on I was I on, know, a, write it I down. Was on a panel up there. You can Google it and listen to me talk. I was okay. on a panel up there in um, I think February of 2020 before everything shut down. And they're interested in knowing how technology is affecting the food system. And those folks don't know anything about food. They just order it, you know, from Grubhub or whatever. And and <laughs> most of those folks, food is just um, a way to stay alive and not necessarily something that they think about enjoying. They'd much rather be playing a video game or writing gotcha. code or something like that. And to you... Food is something that is about um, living in sustenance, which I find much more interesting because that's how I feel about it, too. Yeah. Well, and I was reading some of the reviews about your book, and I and I feel like you're the only person so far that has been, um, you know, that has a published a publication on this subject. But and you have you have great reviews coming in. You're because being called a razor sharp investigative journalist which what a compliment is that it's a great <laughs> that was nice compliment. that was nice and we have her on our show oh, <laughs> that was so lucky. it's so cool and um just to kind of explain um to people like if they haven't heard of you or your book yet can you give us a synopsis of of what it is that you have done in the book 
Of course, of course. So what I decided to do was break up the book um, by ingredients. So I really only focused on food that we can eat. And it was what new foods are coming around, what are what's around the corner. So my first chapter is algae, because algae have been around since the dawn of time. So I started with algae. And then I move into mycelium or fungi. And fungi is like actually one of the more exciting protein sources that I, I see in the new food environment. Um, then I move into pea protein and pea protein leans on really old, old manufacturing processes that brought us soy protein and soy proteins like basically in everything. Um, and so pea protein is sort of neck and neck trying to like out, outplace soy. Then I move into uh, cultured dairy. So people are, there's uh, startups making milk and egg proteins in the lab and want to produce this at scale and turn, you know, my ice cream into including whey or casein ice cream uses whey that doesn't come from animals, but yet is identical to animal whey. So it's this like really confusing thing. Like can vegans eat it? Do vegans want to eat it? Um, their, their market isn't vegans, but it's still a big question. So after that, I move into, um, the uh, plant-based burgers and vertical farms and cultured meat and cultured meat is definitely like one of the like really hot topics of like what's happening to our to our food landscape and then i i have a chapter on marketing and then my last chapter that sarah's in she's in another chapter too but as i asked experts about 20 experts where they what they saw on our dinner plate in 20 years and the answers were really wonderful because they they were you know kind of clear, clearly looking at what might happen to our food food in 20 years but then also like what they hoped would happen to food in 20 years and so it was this lovely kind of um like varying like levels of 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 what people wanted to see. And, you know, you, you, I think a future food system that was more local, more, you know, site specific, there are some things that we can really bring from, take from this that would be helpful, I think, to the food system. I have a joke. <laughs> what did the girl mushroom say to the boy mushroom? I don't know. Gee, yeah, you're a fungi. <laughs> I just had to get that to you, Larissa. You might need it sometime when you're talking about your book. I should have gotten that one. You you yeah. might need it. You know, Sarah likes to sometimes when she's speaking places, she likes to open with food jokes. <laughs> I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen her do it a lot over the years. It's <laughs> pretty funny. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, so I... I want to talk about how what you were writing became a book. Was it something that you were researching already and then you pitched it to someone or what was that step like? Cause lots of, you know, journalists write articles and not very many turn them into a book. Yeah. I, I was covering the, I have been covering the food tech world for the past five years and you know, sometimes veering off of that into another food, kind of a fancier food area, but really focused on food tech. And like I said, people were always asking me about what what was happening here and they wanted to know more. And I knew that, you know, I, if I wanted to go, go further with my career, I had to write a book. So it really became like, what do I want to spend two years of my life working on? And what can I bring to this, this publishing that what can I bring to the food, 
the food world that like needs to happen. And I write in my introduction that I have type one diabetes, which is one of the reasons I like look at food differently. I think about food differently. I say in the book that I see through food, you know, I have x-ray vision. And I think it's one of the things that is most valuable about my writing is because I look at food from a totally different place. And I think that writing this book allowed me the time and space to really, really tackle that job. I think that's an example of that intimacy that I was talking about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So when you were doing research for your book and, um, you know, this is something that I think probably comes up more for someone like you, who is a, you know, a journalist rather than someone who's writing their opinion about something, were there things that you uncovered that you were surprised by? And, um, and then how do you do, how do you tackle reporting those things? If it's something that maybe someone doesn't want you to put out there in the world? Yeah, um, definitely when I'm writing for publications, like I'm a, I frequently contribute to Bloomberg and there are other people reading my work and editing my work and I can't, I can't just say what I want to say. And I even, I mean, the book was my opportunity to kind of stand, stand away from everything and be able to say what I wanted to say. And so I, I truly wasn't too concerned about being, um, straight about what I was finding out. Uh, I do, I did with my writing, try to be balanced in all places. I didn't want to um, pass judgment without like the, the, the reasons to, to make my statement. So I really didn't, I didn't want to opine about what I was learning. I wanted to be like, here's one side and here's another side and here's an expert and here's an expert and here's what I'm learning and bring people along with me without, you know, try to, I didn't want to filter it too much through some kind of negative, um, negative uh, view, viewfinder. That's excellent. When, um, when you are interviewing someone that's a friend, like Sarah, was it hard to know what of the things she said you wanted to put in the book or was it easy for you? <laughs> hmm. um, I mean, Sarah can like, he, I can just say one word and Sarah will then talk for 10 minutes. Like that is like fascinating like information about that one word, right? I, I interviewed her about eggs. Eggs is an ingredient for food formulation. So that's one section she's in my book in uh, the culture dairy chapter and the eggs and dairy chapter. And, you know, I feel like with Sarah, she, she and I were like, we can like, we'll be like just friendly talking and then one second and then business, like, tell me about this ingredient. Like, I want to know more about this ingredient. Tell me about this ingredient. She like answers me and, um, yeah, she's like that best of both worlds. Yeah, I agree. I just, um, you know, I I just find it so curious um, to know what people's process is like, you know, and what it's what it's like to experience your style of writing. You know, I do a lot of, you know, recipe writing, which is in a way it's really boring because it's very technical. And so you don't get to put a lot of things in there. But then the times that I did get to experience that was when I was doing the head notes for things, because then I could make them more personal experiences. So then that's where I could like write about Sarah, write about her influence, like rather than in, in the actual recipe, you know, so that was like a fun process for me to, to experiment Mm -hmm. with. Well, you did that nice piece in the magazine uh, recently, Sarah, too. I think you might, you should like get tips from Larissa. Maybe you could write for some bigger <laughs> publications. I can mentor you. 
<laughs> yep. Do you, I'm sure you don't have anything better to do than to mentor me, Larissa. <laughs> well, I would say that because I write nonfiction from a kind of, you know, more um, rigorous place, you want to find someone who's a recipe, who, who writes cookbooks or writes recipes or who writes more of the um, sort of the chefy food landscape um, versus me. So um, I might have some tips, but I won't have I won't have lengthy ones because it, it's a world I don't know. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk more about your book. Awesome. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. Okay, so we're back and we're going to talk about the book, but I also want to know about your TikTok and all the followers you're gaining. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so before the book came out, I challenged myself to put my face on TikTok, to try foods, to sample, to experiment, to have fun. And the first problem was that I didn't really know how to use TikTok. Um, it's not intuitive to people of my age. So the first thing I had to do was get a 16 year old to help me and (laughs) pandemic was happening. So it wasn't easy. I couldn't just walk walk down the street looking for a 16 year old. So thankfully I'm in a Facebook group in my neighborhood and I posted telling people what I wanted to do. And I'm like, is anybody's kid a big on TikTok and will they help me? Yeah. So this kid came over, we sat outside, he get he spent one hour with me. I gave him 20 bucks and <laughs> and then I became a quote unquote pro. Okay. <laughs> so um I started dabbling in my videos and not getting like a big response, but not really expecting a big response. And every time I would do one, I would send it out to like all of the Gen Z's in my life, like my nephew, anybody I could get, my my niece, my nephew, anybody I could get feedback was like, what can I do better? What can I do differently? And I started creeping up in numbers and I, there were two videos that got 13,000 views. That's um, big in my opinion. And by the way, my, my, my handle on Instagram on TikTok and Instagram is at technically.food. So, yeah. So then I did, I did a video about my book and I thought it was going to do really well. I thought I had made it really fun and funny and clever and it didn't do well. And I was so sad because it was such a big deal for me. And uh, it actually probably did better on Instagram, but then I was growing mushrooms at home. Now this is not really food tech, but it is something that we haven't done before. Like we, you couldn't order a big sawdust block with mushroom spores in it that you would then, you know, spray a couple times a day and like a mushroom would pop out. And I was doing that and it was a lion's mane mushroom that I was growing. And you like, they told you that to name the block, I named him Montgomery and I like spritzed him a couple times a day and talked to him. And I, I put some other plants near him because it said other plants would help, help him grow. And then like I quickly, like so quickly, I started taping what I was doing um, and I harvested it and it was giant. It was like, the, it was honestly the size of a cauliflower. And that's, yeah, it was huge. That's kind of what lion's mane mushrooms look like. They kind of look like a, a cauliflower, but hairy. And so um, the advice I had gotten from a few, a few people was to pick one of the songs that was really popular at that moment in time. And so I landed on a song that was just really popular 
and perfect for my video. And I was a super goofball in the video. And I think that that really helped. And, um, you know, so it probably helped that I'd already done like, you know, 10 videos before that, because I'd started getting more comfortable in the, in the space. Anyways, that video has 126,000 views. What? <laughs> I know, I know. And like, hundreds of comments and it was really exciting. Um, and I have to say like, I don't know how my book is selling because the publisher doesn't share that, um, frequently. So it's like, it was the one thing that I was getting and it was like the one thing I was getting that was sort of feeding my like creativity, like, okay, I'm doing something and here's the reward. Um, so can you tell people in that group that you have a book, if you want to see more of me, check out my book or how do you do that? I never did TikTok. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, but I can't. There, there, once There's no I, way to leverage it. Yeah, there, there isn't. I mean, I just have to do more over time. I just have to keep doing it. So you, I'm, already, I'm already thinking of my next one. Okay. Yeah, it's not really set up to do it that way because it's not like on Instagram either where you can like, she could link to her website or to her book for sale on a book. But you or can have that. like a big backdrop of a picture of your book. You know, what we do is we'll like, no. um, we, on our TikTok, we'll do a lot of, of videos of like, you know, filling sauce, like as we're making it. And then we'll like zoom it down to the bottle of sauce. So people can like see the thing at the end. So if you were doing something about, you know, one of the things that you discovered or one of the things that you're talking about in your book, and then you can zoom to the picture of the book and then all those people that will see it, as long as you're, TikTok is interesting. They'll still also see the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I need? So I need a picture of my book, not the turned around copy of my book. So that's, yeah. that's one of the problems. Yeah. Um, the second problem is I can, I, I need to do it in 30 seconds because right. I want to put it's it on fast. Re- I want to put it on reels and it's so yeah. fast. And there's always so much for me to say. Everyone's like always asking me questions. Like there's something I've missed that I have. Yeah. So like, like giving, uh, giving airspace to like my book, it's a good point. And and maybe I'll try it. But um, yeah, it's just hard. You could have there's a service called Fiverr. I mention it to people the more like me that are that need like some quick um, work done. But it's like people that are graphic designers and artists, and you can find someone on there that can quickly make you a reverse image of your book okay. to have. Yeah. So and it's it's you know very inexpensive, and it's people that will take them no time, and they're you know they're usually building portfolios and things. So you could have that there. But yeah, I think the key with TikTok really, it's about the music and it's about something really interesting, really quickly. It's a totally different platform, but it's really fun to play around with. It is really fun. I've never really thought about it in the book aspect of things, but, um, but it's, it's cool that you're, that you are, that you're there thinking about it and experiencing it. Yeah. That is cool. Uh, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about um, innovation because I know that's a big part of what Sarah Masoni does, and and I know she's in your book. But um, I also know that you had the chapter on manufacturing, um, you know, meat alternatives, and so I know that Sarah was a big um, player in like Garden Burger, which was kind of the first meat alternative, but it's totally different from what's happening now. So I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sarah does have great history and I'm always trying to dig it out of her. Um, she has some top secret stuff too. I'm not sure if she's allowed to talk about it, but my, my plant-based burgers, 
my plant-based burgers chapter goes deep on impossible foods and beyond meat. And I talk about, you know, um, it took beyond meat seven years to come out with their burger and it took impossible about five years. So we kind of think about it as like some kind of overnight success, but it's not really overnight. Um, it took a long time and a lot of money to get them where they are. They also lean on old manufacturing processes and ingredient supply chains, which is really interesting. Like, yeah, those are all things that I helped develop, like in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, was the first person to use texturized wheat gluten, actually, from yeah. Midwest Grain Products, mm-hmm. and I worked with all of the savory um, flavor houses, creating all the different meat flavors and telling them what I wanted. No, it needs to be more this. It needs to be more that. And so, when I taste a lot of the products, I'm like, oh my gosh. They're using da-da-da flavor that I used, you know, in my, you know, fake meat patty that I did a long time ago. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fun thing was in my chapter on um, mycelium, which is the the root network for mushrooms. So it's not the fruiting body, but it's the, it's the underground uh, root network of um, the forest floor and that connects to the mushrooms. Uh, one of the companies doing that uses... TVP in their burger. And when I was there visiting them, we made a burger. So they basically showed me how to make this very same plant-based burger, not a hundred percent identical to beyond an impossible, but I made their, I made their burger with, you know, 10 ingredients. You know, I squished it with my hand and the TVP like slimed between my fingers and it stretched and it like was gooey and it had like thready fibers, which is what meat needs. Right. And then I made a burger. We put it in the fridge overnight. And the next day we, we grilled up two impossible, two beyond burgers and my burger. And we compared them and did like tasting notes of them. And it was so interesting how quickly I could make now how quickly I could make almost the same burger that had taken beyond, you know, five years to to seven years to bring to market. And, um, you know, food food innovation is speeding up and technology is speeding that up. And I bet the pandemic has really like aided some of these companies because people are trying new things. They're, you know, bringing in plant-based proteins into their houses and, you know, the sales have really picked up. Yeah. I mean, once the suppliers learn, what's happening in industry, it's really difficult to not share the information with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there was maybe some, some challenges with Beyond Meat who had a co-manufacturer who, um, you know, they have the recipe and, you know, it's kind of, it's very difficult. It's, and though it's very great area too, because all you have to do is really change one little thing. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes yours. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, impossible and beyond impossible has patent after patent after patent protecting different little th- areas of their burger, but like how they would go after it. I have no idea. I mean, they can only patent the process. You can't patent a, a formula. <coughs> so. Right. Right. But it's like, it might be browning f- with heme or it might be, you know, the yeast that they're using. It, it's like um, super interesting. Yeah. Um, it's getting, it's getting more com- complicated. And that's why I want again, why I wrote the book because our food system is getting overly complicated and, you know, where single parts are more important than the whole. And yeah. I wanted to look at that. Yeah. I, um, I only really know, you know, I'm part of this Portland food culture and, um, you know, and 
work with Sarah a lot and lots of other food makers and kind of um, I'm very connected to the farmer's market, which which to me sounds a lot different than what you're writing about. <laughs> and I feel like we here have this like in Portland, we have this drive to really stay connected to like old processes. So like, you know, my whole business is based on like canning and preserving. And those are things that have been around for a very long time. But it's also that now is is new to people. So, um, you know, I when I was reading some of the things that you were writing about, it really felt like the opposite of what we're doing here um, than compared to what's happening in the Silicon Valley. Do you think that's just because it is such a tech focus culture? I think that food is becoming more complicated and the underlying um, tools needed to make it are, are like only in the lab. So yes, one of the things I talk about is that it's no longer something you can make at home. You know, it, like, what does that mean if I can't make cultured meat at home on my counter, right? Like I've learned how to make sausage and I've learned how to make, you know, things with meat, but I couldn't do that with cultured meat. I couldn't brew up my own cells and then produce something, a steak out of it. And like, is that okay? Is that okay if this distance from, from me to how my, knowing how my food is made, is that problematic? And so, you know, you're, you're pointing out that Portland is like, we want to make our own food. We, we support this, like, DIY, you know, craft process. Um, and that's not what technology is doing. Um, investors want IP, intellectual property. They want to invest in technology. So these, these companies aren't food companies. These companies are technology companies. And so we went from farm to table and getting transparency to technology. And that's like their mission is to save the planet and to stop animal industrial animal agriculture. And so based on their agenda, their mission to, to do these things, they're, they're turning to the lab, turning to technology to answer the questions. And there are pros and cons, right? Um, it's it, it, there are things that need helping. There are things that need solving. Farming can improve, like, but I don't want to lose regenerative organic agriculture, and I don't want to lose sustainability. I want more investment into the soil, right? I want those things, but I also want to see what technology can do to to help us um, with do more with less resources, which is rapidly happening, right? Our resources are really stretched. I think that you can kind of see it though. I mean, you the the technology here just looks different. Like, you know, my farm neighbors used to be old farmers that had had their family farm for three generations and now my farm neighbors are, you know, growing microgreens in container gardens just down the road. You know, and so it's just like those kinds of things are looking different. Um, but we don't we don't really see the manufactured meat things yet at the farmer's market because because it has to be a person making it, you know, rather than like a, a tech company. So I yeah. guess that's really the difference. I talk about that in the book. I talk about because these these sell these sell meat culture meat companies they want to scale right they want to go from making something for the lab to making something that will feed um, a, a country and. There, I said, like, what, could you imagine if they were at the farmer's market, right? I, I like that kind of development because it really, you can get the kinks out. You can, you can test the waters. You can see what people think, right? Instead, and this is, this is again why I wrote the book. Instead, they want to go from, you know, idea to lab to like massive scale. And that's where I think that 
that there's another way to go about this. Um, one idea I have is um, we're working on how to feed people in space or how to feed people on Mars. Well, let's send cultured meat up to, to Mars and feed people there cultured meat, you know, small scale, test it out, see what happens and then bring it back down. Um, I think there are, there are different ways than like going from zero to 60 instantly on, um, on new, new foods that lean so heavily on technology. Especially since the larger you get, the more expensive <clears throat> the failure is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could be, it could be really interesting. Um, I know yeah. ver like vertical farms are seeing a lot of, you know, problems because they've spent tons of money and they need a long runway to get going and many have gone out of business. And so it might be interesting if that, if that plays out in, in other um, sectors. And sometimes just because you have money doesn't mean you should be making food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I it's mean, it's kind of disingenuous. And I think that's why some of the high tech stuff is failing because it's not coming from a place where, you know, or at least as much as I can tell, it's not necessarily coming from a place of personal need. It's yeah. from a place of thinking that the world needs it and the world may have a different opinion. Of yeah. What need. That's a good, that's a great point, Sarah. It's, it's, they, often it's white men, right. With lots of investment money who are making yep. these big, big decisions for us. And they don't even freaking cook. I want, I don't want our food. Come on. <laughs> they don't even cook. How do they know what tastes good? I don't want our food system in the hands of few, right? We want our food system in the hands of many. We want local solutions. We want source foods that are right for the source. Um, there's this Nigerian company that's making stew meat, plant-based stew meat. That's, you know, probably leaning heavily on TVP, but, you know, using and using probably soy protein or vital wheat gluten, but it's, it's, it's stew meat that you rehydrate, right? And then you can turn it into perfect, the perfect solution for their cuisine. And so instead what we have right now are these burgers that are like want to conquer the world or chicken nuggets that want to like, you know, be everywhere. And that's not what I want to see. Yeah. Plus there's so many other opportunities to eat besides burgers, like brown and round is what I used to call it. <laughs> like <laughs> Round and round. That's good. Yeah. I was looking at some of the other um, things that you are working on outside of the book, and you did a lot of writing during the pandemic about what um, restaurants and food producers and people were doing in, during that time. Were there any um, favorite stories that you could tell our listeners about so they can look up the articles? Oh, yeah. I, two, two that were my favorite. Well, I wrote, I, I discovered really quickly that the farmer's markets were still open and people were definitely afraid to go. And I was not afraid to go. I was like, I am going to the farmer's market. I'm going to be outside. And I loved it. And I instantly pitched the story because once they came out as needed becoming essential businesses and that they could remain open, I knew that I had to write about it. Uh, so that was for Bloomberg. And I went and I interviewed everybody. And, you know, there were a few companies that weren't doing, didn't bounce back as quickly because they were so restaurant focused and food service focused, or, you know, that maybe they, may, they had proteins that were like high-end proteins that needed like a home that they didn't have right away without restaurants. But other companies other farmers, like and there was this woman selling eggs that like she couldn't even keep up with them, right? Like she was doing so well. Uh, so it was really nice. And, and all these farmers like 
all of a sudden now they have sort of a direct to consumer <laughs> branch, right? So they like, they really were like, they were pushed into a hard spot and then they stretched and they, 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 they're safer now. They're more, they're more viable. They're like, you know, they're, they can handle the next, the next emergency much better because they had to like be, they had to pivot or be nimble in like how they sold their foods. And so that, yes. that was really wonderful to write about. Um, I also wrote about how tofu was for a while, you couldn't get it on the shelves. And it was sort of like all my vegan and vegetarian friends were complaining that they couldn't find tofu. So I, I got to talk to the like four big tofu makers in the United States. And so that was interesting in its own because it's a Japanese company, a Korean company, an American company that have the like corner, like they have the like tofu market here. Um, and it's just so interesting. And they were running like 24 seven. Like I was like, are you running two shifts? Like one of the companies, the Korean company was shipping tofu over from Korea to like <laughs> catch up with like demand. And uh, according to them, like the, the Korean tofu is like sort of the cream of the crop tofu. Cause they're like, they're make their facilities are so amazing. Um, and so it was really fun to go deep on tofu cause I love tofu and um, you know, it was a quirky fun story to write. And that was for Bloomberg also. Yeah. That's We're seeing people wanting to continue to innovate in that category right now. So we have a local tofu maker here in Portland, which is, yeah. is rare because they're a pretty small facility, but they provide to mostly just the restaurants here in town. So then when they stopped, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do. I'm in a class with Jason, who's the owner of Odoa Tofu. And um, so he was trying to figure out what to do, but then it picked back up because they just figured out how to sell direct to consumer, which is better anyways for them. And they're but, moving, I heard. They're going to move to a well, bigger they need, facility. They need a bigger facility. Yeah, I think they're still kind of deciding. He, they might, I don't know what... When what I was at Gartenberger, I used to go buy buckets of tofu from them when I was doing tofu stuff. Oh, yeah. awesome. Well, I, I wrote a... I, I, there's an excerpt from my book on Wired, and it's about this like mayo marketing, like kind of behind the scenes, like kind of undercover things that have happened in the mayo world, which is really funny because it's just like this kind of boring, simple condiment, but there's been a lot of intrigue to it. And in the seventies, follow your heart, which is a big uh, vegan company. They, yeah. that's what, that's what they did is he got bucket scraps of tofu to make his initial version of Veginase, yeah. which is like their most popular product today. And he has like 10 different kinds, but um, yeah. So eventually they had, they couldn't go use the tofu scrap solution, but they, uh, that's how it started. And they recently sold though. I heard they did. They sold to Danone. I know it was, it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the new, uh, mayonnaise as I've seen is Sir Kensington and there's a local company here Susie's mayonnaise that's being made and we have people coming in saying they want to make mayonnaise so I know it's <laughs> it's so it's like it's like the you know the easy easy way in to making something for food mm -hmm. like condiment yeah, yeah. condiment and sauce mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I'm sure during this time I mean you were talking about writing about the farmer's market and that you felt that really good about going there and supporting people. So first of all, just thank you because not everybody felt that way. And yeah, you know, some good. of us were out there being like, are we going to make it if like no one's shopping and, and how are we going to do this? But so uh, it's lovely that you wrote about that. So thanks for that. But I also think that, um, you know, when I read your stories that you were writing during the pandemic, I think everything came from a a real place of hope. And, you know, when a lot of things were being reported on was like all these tragedies and you're really like going in and talking to people that were figuring it out, which sometimes as people 
trying to figure it out. You need to see that people are doing it just to like, be like, no, this, if they can do it, I can do it. You know? So I really appreciated that about your articles. Yeah. I, you know, as a, as a freelance independent writer, it's like, what do I want to want to write about? What do I care about? Cause sometimes it takes me a while to get paid. So, um, oftentimes it's just like, what, what really excites me and interests me. And usually it's those, I can't help it. My friend, what she would call me earnest, like too earnest sometimes, because I really wanted to, to do good by the food world. Well, it's, it's apparent and I appreciate it. So thank you. (laughs) Um, I want to make sure that people can connect to you directly. So what's the best way for them to find you on social media outlets? Yeah. So on Instagram and TikTok, I'm technically dot food on Twitter. I'm at Elzenbaroff. You can find all of my events, my appearances, my podcasts that I've appeared on, on my website, which is, uh, it's technically food.com. And I have a newsletter that I send out every Friday. It's fun. It's short. It's full of tidbits. And, you know, one thing that's sort of, you know, making me shake my fist in the air and you can sign up for that newsletter on my website. Perfect. And um, when do you, have you done like a virtual book tour or what is that process looking like for you right now since your book came out during this time? Yeah. Yeah. My book came out June 1st. I've had one bookstore event. It was virtual. I was interviewed by Kate Crater, who is wonderful and writes about food for Bloomberg. She's my editor there. And it was super. It was for Book Passage in the Bay Area. And it was just great. And you can watch it online. You can find a link to my website. I'm hoping to have more bookstore events. I, I'm, I'm also an East Coast girl. So I really would like to, to pop up at some East Coast establishments. And I would, you know, gosh, if, if a Portland bookstore wanted me to come in, I would drive up tomorrow. So yeah, I'm like ready for people to invite me because I will show up. Yeah. Well, if anyone out there is listening and wants to host a book event, yes. I, um, I like to MC at the PALS event. So maybe I'll reach out to my people and see if we can get you scheduled. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. Okay. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> oh, that's cool, Sarah. <laughs> I'm like, Sarah, what do you want? I will send you anything. <laughs> nope. I just want to chat about your book with the people. <laughs> Sweet. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love Portland so much. I, try to get up there. I was actually up there in October. It was like this little lull in the pandemic. And I did a road trip to Washington and Oregon. And it was just, it really helped me. I, my eyes saw new things and it was just so, so, so great to like get out on the road. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to get out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We always like to have, um, to see if you have any advice. And so specifically for you, it would be probably advice for women who want to write about food, because I think there's a lot of people out there. Do you have any advice for them? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, let me give advice for how to eat in the new world. Um, I can give writing advice too, but how to eat. So, you know, I'm not saying don't eat impossible or beyond or any of these strange foods in the book. I'm saying in the book, eat as much variety as possible. Like we, we get into ruts and we eat the same thing and that's not good for you. Like the way to feed your microbiome, the way to feed your soul, the way to feed your body is to get as many different nutrients as possible. And, you know, I uh, like to eat close to the origin, but I also like to try all these strange foods. And so there's a room in my diet for everything as long as, you know, most of it is things that are things that I recognize. Okay, so- writing advice, write about what you care about, write about like what 
makes you like get up in the morning or keeps you up at night, that is what you should write about. And so to me, it's like you find that, you find that thing and then, and then you can start writing because, and I started a blog. So the way I started in New York when I was in grad school was I started a blog. I had a, I had a bad date and the guy told me I needed a blog and that the blog needed to be about one thing. <laughs> so I started a blog and my, my, the name of my blog was I bike for food and it just, that's where, and then I kept going. Yeah. I love it. I think advice from both those aspects are beautiful and wonderful. <laughs> Thank are. you. Well, unfortunately, ladies, we're out of time. Ah. And I promised I would be prompt. So we got to wrap it up. So I just want to thank you for being on the show. And it was wonderful to meet you and chat with you and hear about your book. Will you tell people where they can get it? Yeah, you can get the book at any independent bookstore, including Powell's. You can get it online at bookshop.org. You can get it from the big people I won't name. And you can you can get uh, the audio version is now available on audible.com. And it's my voice that you will hear. And the Kindle version is available. And yeah, um, if you want to have me into your store, I'll send you a PDF. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah and Sarah. Thanks, Larissa. We record Masoni and Marshall live every week. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest a guest, you can send us a message to our Instagram at Masoni and Marshall, and we will be back next week. Thanks for joining, everybody. Bye. Bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers, as well as farmers, fisherfolk, and ranchers by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.